And today we're going to talk about letters. Now, getting letters in the mail can be really fun. It's a bit of a lost art these days. Because between email, text, DM, video chat, like when was, literally, when was the last time you got an actual physical letter in the mail from someone? But you know, when you do, it gets really exciting. So hands down, one of the best letters I've ever received was in 1989. I was a senior in high school, and I received a letter from my freshman self. It was delivered via a, a mailbox by a lake house with a ghost. No, I'm just kidding. But it was delivered. I actually did write it my freshman year as part of my English class. It was an assignment. And the teacher would then deliver it to us when we were graduating seniors. And, and, and that, so three and a half years later, we would receive this letter. And so I still have it exactly as it was back then. Um, and so you can include anything you wanted in this letter. So I included a whole bunch of things. I included photos, anything that was important to you as a freshman or important to me as a freshman in high school. So I included photos and Xerox copies of things. I've, this was our family photo. This was a Christmas photo that year. Check out that skinny tie. Yeah, that is fly right there. That is, I have rocking 1984 style right there, okay? It was good to see skinny ties come back. Um, I also included my freshman water polo picture. I clearly had the body of a hairless boy mannequin. <laughs> um, I, I included a copy of the, the ticket to the very first concert I ever attended, Depeche Mode. Now, most of you have probably have no idea, but they were the pinnacle of techno pop of the 80s. And I was so scared to go to a concert all by myself with just me and a friend without my parents or anything like that. Um, so I had that. But hands down, the best part of this letter, part of the assignment is we had to write a letter to ourselves. So freshman Greg wrote a letter to senior Greg. And, well, check out some of these highlights. Dear Greg, when you read this letter, you'll be a senior. I'm writing to this because it's one of Mrs. Jan's crazy assignments. Yeah, that pretty much sounds like a, a ninth grader right there. Okay, or how about this one? I'm typing this out on my Apple IIe with a green monitor and two disk, Apple disk drives. That's right. I was rocking a full 512K on that thing. Yeah. Or this one, my favorite, though, is... Probably the greatest aspect of this year was my female companionship. What up, player? <laughs> yeah. And then I proceeded to, to describe all the girls that I went on dates with, apparently as a freshman. So letters can be funny. They can be inspiring. They can even be a little embarrassing. And, you know, and the Bible is actually full of letters. We see it in the Old Testament as correspondence that was sent between usually to rulers and leaders. We see it in the New Testament. You might be familiar with the letters of Paul. You might have heard some letters like Galatians, Ephesians, Ephesians, Philippians. Those are all letters that Paul, as a pastor and shepherd, would write to a congregation. Uh, and now they're part of our scriptures. And you know what? The book of Revelation has letters in it. In fact, the whole book, it's part letter, part prophecy, and part apocalypse, unveiling, as we talked about a few weeks ago. And that's part of what makes this book difficult to understand and interpret, 
because it's not a single genre. It's the old, like, why can't we be all of them? Sure. And so we're going to look at today, chapters 2 and 3, and this, because this contains the clearest letters that are a part of this book. And if you've been around church, maybe you grew up going to church, you've probably heard a sermon on the letters of the, to the seven churches in Revelation, and it's like one each week. Well, here, we're hitting all seven in one message. So this is fairly high level. We're not going to dive deep into any one of the letters, but they are part of our Revelation reading plan. And if you've been following along, you've actually read some of those already. If you haven't, there's a, there's a little peach handout back in the Connection Center. You can grab one of those. And don't worry, you could, we've only been out for a couple weeks. You could still catch up. Literally, man, half an hour commute with a Bible app playing in your car. You could get yourself all caught up. But it's a great way to read Revelation with us and follow along with our sermons. And so, Revelation 2 and 3, they consist of seven letters, which the Apostle John wrote to seven actual churches. These weren't ju like general teachings. No, these were real churches in real places with very real people. They were located in Asia Minor, near Greece. Uh, what we consider Turkey. So if you picture that, picture Turkey, those are the seven churches. And in, in the Mediterranean Sea, you see the island of Patmos down toward the bottom. That was where John was exiled to, and he was writing these letters. Thankfully, he could still get visitors and messengers, so he would write these on a scroll, and then a messenger would take this scroll and then travel from church to church. And you can see it's actually in a little circle. And the letters in the book follow that circle. Because Ephesus would be the first church he got to. That was the first letter he wrote. And then Smyrna and then Pergamum. And he would just follow that little postal route and let each of the churches read their letter, but also read all the other letters and the whole book. Because it was all meant for everyone. Because, as you might recall, if you were here one of the last couple weeks, we talked about the importance of numbers. There were seven churches here. That's not accidental. Because seven represents divine completeness. So while John, yes, he was writing to specific churches, he was also writing to all the churches. The complete church of followers of God. So that means us too. River life is included in that. And so, so John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote these letters. Uh, and and these, are, these are amazing because these aren't just any ordinary congregation. You see, John pastored in Asia Minor. In fact, Ephesus, many believe that that's where he wrote the book of John, was when he was pastoring and shepherding in Ephesus. So these are not strangers to him. This, these were his, his people, even his friends. So he's right, and that's important to remember because he's writing this not as an outsider, but he's writing this with a pastor's heart. So as you read these, remember that. It'd be like me, someday I won't be the pastor of this church. I'll retire and hand this off to hopefully people way more capable than I. And I'll be retired out on a beach in Southern California Imagine I'm chilling there and I, and I write you a letter or an email or a hologram or whatever we're doing up in 2050. And I send it to you and say, I love you. 
River Life, you are amazing. But, you know, I see these things, and it's troubling. But I want to encourage you to continue and have faith. That's what John was doing. So remember, these are from a pastor's heart. Uh, so we're going to actually listen to, through an audio Bible, we're going to listen to all of chapters 2 and 3. What's nice is it's only about six, seven minutes. Dude, for two chapters of Scripture. Um, so, I, so in a bit, I'm going to sit down and we can listen to those together. It'll be up on the, all the, the verses will be up on the screen. But before we dive into that, I want to explain to you the basic structure of these letters. Because all of these letters follow a particular formula. And it's actually pretty amazing how consistent it is. And I, I want to give you these, these categories, these sections. So while you're listening, be like, oh, I recognize that one. That's a greeting. That's an affirmation. That's an encouragement. So... Here, there are five basic sections to every one of these letters. Five basic sections. There's a greeting. It always begins with a greeting to the church's angel. We'll talk about that in a bit. Then there's a description of Christ. These are the words from Jesus. And these descriptions almost all come out of chapter 1. Okay? And then, so after we listen to it all together, I'm going to come back to these five categories, and we'll talk through some examples and things like that. Okay? There's almost always an affirmation. There's almost always an affirmation of what the church is doing. And it's things like saying, saying, I know, I see. And it's John affirming them. Uh, and then there's all, almost always a correction. And then he transitions and says, nevertheless, I have this against you. Yet, there are problems in your church. So he offers this pastoral correction. And then, there's, toward the end, there's always this motivating phrase. And it's things like, to those who conquer, here's what God's going to do. To those who are victorious, here's what God promises. That's, and then he'll often end with the words, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So, those are the five categories. And I want you to listen for those categories as you listen, as we listen, to these seven letters. And so, go ahead and play those. And sit back, follow along if you'd like to read. Otherwise, you can close your eyes and don't fall asleep, though. Okay? And you can listen to Revelations chapter 2 and 3. So did you follow along? Did you hear the sections? I bet for some of you that might have been the first time that those, those passages might have made a little bit more sense now. And we're going to dive a little bit more into these sections to, and look at some of these, some of these patterns and sections and, and then what it means for us. But before we do that, I want to debunk a really common interpretation of Revelations 2 and 3. It's out there a lot, and it's particularly popular among American conservative Protestants. In fact, if you, if you go to YouTube and, watch, and, and just do Revelation 2-3, a lot of the people, a lot of the pastors and, and content creators on there will, will take this approach to reading chapters 2 and 3. The problem is, it is completely wrong. It is absolutely completely wrong. So what is, what is this approach that is really misguided? Well, what it says is that these seven churches represent seven periods in church history. 
So they're symbolic. I mean, everyone acknowledges, yes, they were real churches, but really what God was doing here was describing seven eras, chronological eras in church history, usually based off significant world or church events. And so here's a chart of, of those that espouse this view will argue that, so like the, the church at Ephesus was the Apostles' Church. That was the beginning church that went up to around 100 A.D. And then Smyrna was the persecuted church. They were under Roman, Roman oppression. Uh, and then Pergamum, that was the compromised church. That was at 312 when Constantine legalized, um, legalized Christianity and basically embedded the church into the government, and they became one. So it was compromised. And then the worldly church during the medieval period. Uh, and then even the, Refor the Reformation church. The Reformation was around 1500 or so. That was along the Enlightenment period as well. And so then that's the Reformation church. Uh, and some say that the, that stage goes on through today as well. And then there was the true church, 1750 to around 1900s or so, early 1900s. And then the lukewarm church, 1900 or so till now. And so that they say that these, these, um, these churches, these letters, were actually, were actually prophecies about future eras of the church. Well, there are a wealth of problems with this approach. Now, some, some of you may have never heard this before. Some of you may have. And you, you may have even heard it taught in churches. But there are a ton of problems. Okay, first, it just feels really far-fetched. It feels really forced that these churches fit perfectly into these time periods of church history. Okay, second is it has a very modernist bias. Right? Think about this. It implies that Revelation, that th these two chapters in Revelation basically didn't mean anything until 1900. I mean, what do you do with this theory in 1500 or in 600 A.D.? It's basically meaningless. So it's, it's a very modernist bias to looking at Scripture. Okay? Third is the book of Revelation gives zero indication, even hints, that it's talking about periods of time. In fact, the whole book gives very little about actual timelines with dates and years. That's not what Revelation is really written about. And then chapters 2 and 3, they are 100% focused on real-life churches. There, there's not really symbolic language. If you look at this from a linguistic perspective, there's not the type of language that you see in the more prophetic, the more futuristic parts of Revelation. Okay? Uh, but also, and this one, oh, oh, and this one, part of looking at the way chapters 2 and 3 are written it essentially treats an epistle, which is a letter, that's the genre, it treats an epistle like a prophecy. And that's just bad Bible reading. <laughs> that is bad interpretation. You need to understand and read Scripture for what it is, not what another part of it is. And then there's one more really big problem with this. And it's one more bias. This has very much an American Protestant sort of Eurocentric bias to it. 
See, it finds its heroes. Notice in the Philadelphia, that second to last category, that, that it's the only true church out of all of church history. Everything else has problems in it. But the best church from 1750 to 1900. Now, if you know a little bit about church history, that's the period of the American Great Awakening. That was, that was church revival. It was also the birth of the modern missions movement. And so here, here are a bunch of European and American theologians saying the best time in church history was when America was really good. That seems to have a little bias to it. And any time where it wasn't focused on revival and missions, then the rest of those churches were flawed. It doesn't even take into account God's work across the rest of the globe that had nothing to do with America and nothing to do with white people. But God has moved faithfully and consistently all across the globe. So that's, that's probably the, certainly one of my biggest problems other than it's just bad hermeneutics, bad interpretation. So there are a whole lot of problems. And honestly, I was, I was shocked at how many people online I, I still encountered who were teaching this approach to Revelation 2 and 3. So I just want to say, if you run across that, or maybe you've heard it and you like it and you believe it, hopefully you see that there are some very significant flaws to that approach. Instead, let's look at these as letters. Let's look at these to re as real churches, real letters, and, the, and people with real problems. And just because it doesn't represent represent eras of church history does not mean there's nothing in here for us to learn about and nothing in here that we might resonate with and places where God can speak to us as well. So let's talk a little bit more about this structure. Let's go back to those five sections, those five sections. So the first one is the greeting to the church's angel. You probably heard it. Oh, the exact same words seven times. To the angel of the church in blank write this. Now, last week we talked a little bit about that word angel, and there are a couple ways people interpret that. One is that, it, that it's a metaphor. The Greek word also means messenger, so it can represent a human messenger. And so some will argue that these are letters written to the lead pastors, or the Catholic Church describes it as letters written to the bishop of that area. The other argument that these are divine beings. And that's the one where I tend to fall. Because when I, uh, there are a few things when I look at to say, you know what, I'm not sure I buy that these represent, even though the, the sentences seem to make more sense, to the lead pastor of the church at Pergamum, uh, Pergamum right. That seems to make more sense, but there are some problems. So first, in the entire book of Revelation, there is not a single instance of the Greek word for angel that is in the NIV that is translated as a human messenger. That's problematic. To all of a sudden say, of the dozens of angels that appear in the book of Revelation, all of a sudden these ones represent people. Not only that, but over 90%, I think it was 93% of the translations in the NIV in all of the New Testament, written in, in Greek, um, the overwhelming majority are translated as angelic beings. There are only a few instances that are actual human messengers. Now, it doesn't mean that this isn't, but it sure means that the odds are leaning very heavily 
that these are, these are actual angelic messengers. And so I like to think that churches have sort of guardian angels, that even river life might have angels that are assigned to us. How, why, whether they use people soft, whether they use whatever they use to manage all of this stuff. But God does it. So maybe there are some angels that are sort of guarding over us. And, and that's who John is saying, hey, angel, take this to the church. Let them read this. Let me speak to them through this letter. So next part. I love these. This is the description of Christ. It says, these are the words of him who. And then over and over again, you, you probably heard of it. And if you were around a couple weeks ago or read chapter one, you recognize some of these. It's who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks along the lampstands, whose face is bright shining, whose eyes are flaming fire, whose feet are made of bronze. All of those, all of those come out of chapter one over and over again. The sharp double-edged sword out of his mouth. And if you remember, those were all symbolic images. And go, but if you missed the first week of this, go back to that a couple weeks on YouTube or Facebook, and you can listen to, and you can learn about all that symbolism. But I love that every letter began with Christ. And one of the big things I talked about in week one, that Revelation is a Christocentric book. Everything about this book is about Christ. So I love that the letter started that way also. Uh, next up is affirmations. And I love this. If, if you've ever had any sort of communication um, lessons about how do, you, how do you share hard things with people, they always talk about if you have something hard, you want to sandwich it between two positive things. If you have something negative, say something positive, then bring up the negative, then say something positive. John does that. <laughs> he, he, he affirms them, and then he says something hard, and then he gives them a promise. Good thing, hard thing, good thing. And so, and I love this. In almost all of the letters, he says, I see you. And you know what? Honestly, some of you just need to hear that today. God sees you. He sees your hard work. He sees your faithfulness. Yes, he sees your failures. But he sees you trying. And he sees trying to, you loving people. He sees you. And I love that. That this church would receive a letter and they would be told, God sees. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service and perseverance. I know you. I see you. So I, I always love that section in these letters. Now next up, he moves into the hard truths. And man, you know, he wouldn't be a pastor if he didn't bring up a hard truth. And it's one of the parts of my job that I don't necessarily enjoy, but I lean into. Or in River Life, we talk about leaning into the hard conversations. We, we, we have the conversations that are the last 10%. And those are the hard ones that are so easy to ignore. And, and some of you know you've been on the receiving end of a hard, loving conversation with me. And I've been on the receiving end of hard, loving conversations with me. 
And so this correction. And I love this because there's always a good transition word in there. Nevertheless, yet I hold this against you. Yet I know your, I know your good deeds and I know your bad deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. I hold this against you. And remember, this is a pastor. He's speaking from a pastor's heart. And for those of you who have had experiences with pastors that are not abounding in love, I am sorry for that. And know that if we ever have to sit down over something hard, you know that I will be abounding in love with you and I will be for you just like John was. So there's the correction. And then lastly, there are these amazing promises that show up in each of these letters. And they're meant to motivate them. Because here's the reality. At this time, again, this was around in the 90 AD or so, at this time, persecution was growing. Persecution of Christians was growing under, under Emperor Domitian. And that means every one of these churches were at risk at risk of being arrested, shut down, beat up, burned down, executed, sent into the lions. That's what the reality was. And so he said over and over, and I love the language he used. It's just not if you hold on. And I don't know if you've been through a hard enough period where you're just happy with let me survive. No, that's not what John says. He says, to you who are victorious, to the ones who conquer, that's who we can be in Christ. And so I love that. Then he gives them this promise that's usually filled with amazing symbolic language that we're going to run into in the coming chapters. But it's to the one who is victorious, I'll give you the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To the one who is victorious, I'll give them the right to sit with me on my throne. These are pretty amazing promises. But you have to remember, God gives those promises of what our second life will be. God makes no promises that he will remove pain and hardship and difficulty from our life here on earth. And when, when it is hard, we can't rest on the promise that God will make it better. He might. He might not. But we can rest on the promise that God will, this is it, will, will make it better in the future, in our second life with him. And so he says, this is why you Stay the fight. And you can be victorious. You can conquer. And then he usually closes the letters with, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So, are they starting to make sense? Are you kind of tracking? Are these following along? And hopefully they are. Hopefully you could pick up any one of these letters in two or three. Be like, yeah, I, I kind of follow this now. This makes sense to me. Now, how can, we, how can we have a better way to interpret these, these 
letter, these tattoos, rather than looking at them as periods and eras in time, which is just a kind of a hokey, a hokey forced way to look at it. Instead, there is a better way. Okay? Think, of, think of a new way to look at these as this, is these seven churches, these seven churches represent the range of different churches and also different Christians along your spiritual journey. So any church can be any one of these churches, can be similar to them, can fall for the same traps that these churches fell. These churches are emblematic of churches all across the world, but they're also symbolic and emblematic of what your life, if you're a follower of Christ, there might be times in your life where you're a little more Ephesus, maybe a little more Smyrna. And then you listen and you pay attention to what God is saying to that church and to you. Because fundamentally, every one of these letters has a common thread. And it's this. Will you compromise when life gets hard? Will you compromise when life gets hard? Will you compromise your faith? Will you compromise truth? Will you compromise integrity? Will you compromise when life gets hard? And every one of these letters addresses that very question. And that is a question every one of us can relate to. So think of it. Will you compromise when life gets hard? So what does this look like for the seven churches? Will you forget your first love like Ephesus? Or will you suffer well like Smyrna? Will you remain committed to truth like Pergamum? Or will you tolerate immorality like Thyatira? Will you say you're alive when you're really dying inside like Sardis? Or will you stay on mission? And stay focused even with it when it costs you something, like Philadelphia. Will you wholeheartedly live for Christ? Or will you be lukewarm, like Laodicea? That's how we can understand these letters. Every one of these letters challenges us with a way to compromise or a way to resist compromise. So as one theologian put it that I really like it, in describing chapters 2 and 3. Christ desires a church characterized by the fullness of orthodoxy, which is right belief, and orthopraxy, which is right behavior. Faithfulness and fearlessness. Devotion to Jesus, but not to the state. And a preference for the poor rather than the rich. That is the best summary that I've run across about chapters 2 and 3. That is what God desires from his church. And that's what God desires from you.